If you have your Bible, please turn in, 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 turn in that Bible to Romans chapter 11 as we keep going through Romans today and picking up right where we left off last week at Romans 11 verses 16 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, then please get one of the black Bibles that's on the end of each pew. And that Bible, I believe it's on page 947. And let's read together what this tells us as he's been speaking of the remnant of Israel, what is going on with, uh, with the ethnic people of Israel in God's plan. Here is what he says in Romans 11, starting in verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. There is an amazing thing here as we consider this teaching that we have been in for the last couple of weeks as we see Romans 11 is, is in some ways a difficult passage to interpret and is one of those passages that depending on various other understandings of various other parts of Scripture and, uh, and those sorts of things, that it can be lots of different interpretations among faithful Christians. But as we see that, I think one of the things that we're called to here is to recognize this incredible reality that God loves and saves sinners. And so we ought, we ought not to lose sight of that. That in all of this, God didn't have to save anybody at all. God didn't have to leave us uh, in this, this privileged position where we're sitting here sorting through, well, what is the nature of those that he saved among the people of Israel, and what is the nature of the sa- those that he saved among Gentiles, and how exactly does this work out, and how, how is all of this going to, to play out? We could just be in the position of being left in our sins to die. We could be in the position, and God, had he chosen to do it this way, would be right to do it, to leave the entire human race condemned in the sin that we fell into in the Garden of Eden. He said, in the day you eat it, you will surely die. And at that point, no promise had been given yet of any way of redemption. But the incredible thing is that he did give a promise of a way of redemption. That he said that there would come this offspring from the woman who would crush Satan's head, who would reverse the curses, who would save sinners from their sins. So just keep in mind, and I've mentioned this before, that with the angels, the angels are said by by God in the scriptures to be a little higher than us. He set man a little lower than the angels. But with angels, there is no plan of salvation. There are the elect angels, as the Bible calls them, who never sinned against God, who are still on the side of God, who will forever be on the side of God, sinless. But there are also the fallen angels, who we also call demons. But they, a third of heaven's legions, fell away rebelled against God, sought under the leadership of of the head fallen angel whose name is Satan to 
try to overpower him, to take his place. But we see there, there is no plan of God to look at those angels that fell into sin and to give them a path of forgiveness and redemption. That ought to make us realize, hey, all of these questions having to do with the specifics of how it is that God will work out his salvation of sinners in this world, all of those questions ought to make us be thankful that God has made a way at all. God has made a way for sinners to be saved, and it's in Jesus Christ. As we come to this passage specifically that we just read in Romans 11, starting in verse 16, there are several things that that, uh, could be meant when the word Israel comes up at various times in Scripture, and it's been talking about Israel, and really Romans 9, 10, and 11 are all dealing with the question of what about Israel? And I do want to clarify a little bit because this can get confusing depending on what is the first thing that pops in your mind when you hear the word Israel. One of the ways that the word Israel is used in Scripture is to talk about the person whose name was Jacob to begin with. There was Abraham, and then there was his son Isaac, and then there was his son Jacob. And Jacob's name got changed by God to Israel. And that's where the name of the nation of Israel comes from, is from Jacob, who's also called Israel. So that's one way that the Bible uses the word Israel, is to talk about that individual, Jacob slash Israel. There's also, when the word Israel comes up, you could be talking about the Old Testament nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel that was established with, uh, with King David being over the throne at one point, that Old Testament nation of Israel. There's also some people, when they hear the word Israel, the first thing that they think of is the modern nation state of Israel that right now is over there in the Middle East with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and and all of the things that are going on there with the modern geopolitics in the Middle East. That's one way that you could be thinking of the word Israel. There's also the way that the Bible uses the word Israel and the way that it's mainly being used here in Romans 11, which is ethnic Israel. And so this this is speaking of the Jewish people those who are the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there's another way as well, and this is part of why this gets so confusing here in Romans and in this section of Romans, is that there is another way of speaking of Israel which is called spiritual Israel or true Israel, the Israel of God as it's called at the end of the book of Galatians or as it's called in, in, in uh, Romans 9, that they are not all children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall be uh, his offspring named. And so he says, therefore, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So there's, there is all kinds of ways that you should be, could be thinking, but what we're going to see today is that the question that has come up in Romans 11 is what about ethnic Israel. What about the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or as we would usually call them today, the Jewish people? What is their role? What is God doing there? What's he going to do? Because so many have, in Paul's day and continuing into our day, have rejected their Savior that God sent. Jesus, who is the, the, the whole point and pinnacle of Israel, 
that the whole history of Israel was pointing toward this one person whose name is Jesus, who is, is the Lord who is coming, the one who is the descendant of David to sit on the throne. He is the Messiah. He's the Savior. He has come, and yet his very own people, for the most part, have rejected him. Well, Romans 11 has already showed us, <clears throat> excuse me, in the, the beginning verses, that that rejection of Christ by ethnic Israel, by the Jewish people, for one thing, is not total. That there still are those among ethnic Israel who have turned to faith in Jesus Christ and thus demonstrated themselves to be not just part of ethnic Israel, but also part of the true spiritual Israel of God. Those who are the elect remnant chosen by God, as it's put in uh, verse 6, I think it is. Five, six, somewhere around there. <laughs> the elect remnant. But then, in this part, and I told you this last week, but just to remind you, it's, it's moved on to say that that rejection is, is not just uh, not total, but also not final. That there seems to be promised, and, and we'll see this in coming weeks as well, that there will be a time in the future when many, many from ethnic Israel, from the Jewish people, will come to an understanding that Jesus is the Christ and will become much more Jewish by embracing the Jewish Messiah and being part of that elect remnant of God. But as we, as we come today and we talk about this, there is going to be a teaching here to us that in all of this, that there's not two peoples of God. There, there's the question... How does God deal with the Gentiles, and how does God deal with the Jews, with Israel? But there is not two separate peoples of God. That's what we're going to see today, that all of this, those who come to faith in Christ, are coming together in one tree, one olive tree. Now, he's already made this clear a little bit in Romans chapter 4. If all we had was Romans 4, we would already know this concept because he's already told us in Romans 4 that there's only one way to be a true child of Abraham in God's eyes, and it's not by physical descent, and it's not by circumcision. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. The way to be a child of Abraham, according to Romans 4 and according to Galatians 3, is to share in the faith of Abraham. That's the same thing that John the Baptist preached when he came baptizing, uh, making the way for Jesus. He, he said to unbelievers who had come out claiming to be children of Abraham, claiming to have a right to baptism because of that, he said to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, for God is able to raise up the, from these stones children of Abraham. He's able to make new children of Abraham, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. But then here is the question, too, that we come to. Well, does that mean that there is some sort of a rejection of the people of Israel ethnically? Does that mean that God would split it up and say, you guys are bad, you guys are good, I'm going to deal with you one way, I'm going to deal with you another way, I'm going to have one people over here with the gospel of the kingdom, one people over here with the gospel of grace? Is it all going to be separate? And this says no. One people of God, the true Israel, joined to the true vine that is Christ in the true olive tree of the true spiritual Israel by faith in Jesus. So let's look first at verse 16 as we kind of sort through this and stand in awe as we're going to be told at the end of this passage. 
that God would save any sinners at all? Let's see some of how he, he does this. He says in verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. What in the world is he talking about? Well, probably what he's talking about is this offering that's described in Numbers chapter 15, verse 20, where he says, of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution. Like a contribution from the threshing floor, so you shall present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. So what seems to be going on there is this idea that this, this was a regular offering set up by God, part of the first fruits, is that when you've got your dough and you're, you've, you've had your harvest of wheat, you're able to make your dough, that you take part of that dough and the first part of it goes and is set aside as holy to the Lord as, an, as a first fruits offering to the Lord. And Paul's point here is if the, if, if the first fruits is holy, then the whole lump is holy. And then he moves on to another analogy that he's going to stick with for the whole rest of the time, which is the root and the tree. So he says, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And he's going to explain, he's, he's got in mind here this picture of an olive tree with roots, with a trunk, with branches. And what is he talking about with that first fruit out of the lump of dough? What is he talking about with that root? Well, anytime you come across a, a metaphor like this in the Bible, you could come up with a hundred different answers of this thing must mean this thing. This analogy must be pointing to this person or this place or something like that. But almost certainly what he means here by the first fruits and also by the root, almost certainly what he means is the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people that God started out with as he was forming a people for himself. One of the reasons that we can, can see that is that there are several places in the Jewish literature that would have been familiar in Paul's day to him as a Jewish scholar, where Abraham and the other patriarchs are described as the root of the tree that is Israel. So we do see it there, but we also see it in this chapter, in verse 28, uh, where it says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So it seems that the, the root of the tree that he's talking about here, the holy set-apart root is the forefathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what was going on with that root? Well, what was going on started in Genesis 12. These promises that God gave to Abraham, the root of Israel. He says, God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I would, I'd like to just take an hour just to exposit that text for you now, if you don't mind. And then we'll come back to the other one. I can't do that. But what he's, what he's doing here, what God is doing is he's saying, Abraham... I'm calling you. I'm setting you apart, and I am making a covenant with you, and I am going to bring these blessings. I am promising I will bring these blessings. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless them. And also, from in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. You hear that? So you, you've got it right there. 
Even if we didn't have Romans 11, it's, it's right there in Genesis 12 that God didn't just have plans for what was going on with, with Abraham. He didn't just have plans for his physical descendants. He also had plans through this blessing of Abraham to, to give salvation and blessing to all of the nations, all of the families of the earth. That's an amazing thing. But this root here that he's talking about, that would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what does it then mean for the the whole lump of dough to be holy and for all of the branches to be holy? Well, he's saying that God still has some kind of an intention for what he wants to do with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with ethnic Israel. Is, Is that intention... Does that have something to do with uh, reestablishing the Jewish kingdom on earth? Does that have to do with reestablishing the temple with all of the Old Testament sacrifices and that sort of thing? No. (laughs) No. And there's so many places. You can just read the book of Hebrews if you're wondering, is that what God's plan is for the people of Israel? Hebrews makes it very, very, very clear that no, we now have in Christ the heavenly things that all of those earthly things were pointing to. There is no need to look toward an earthly setting up of another temple, to look toward some sort of an earthly sacrifice when Jesus has already given himself as the final sacrifice. When Jesus is already seated in the heavens, in the true tabernacle that is above. But all of that doesn't mean that God has then said, I no longer care about the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says the root is holy and the branches are holy. Now holy sometimes means all the way clean and pure. In this case, it just means set apart. That's what we're looking at here. This is the, the, the kind of holy that he means, is, is set apart. He's saying, I still remember what I promised to Abraham's descendants. That is still on my mind. I still have a plan. I still consider even those unbelieving branches, even those among the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are right now separated from me in their sin, hating me because they hate Christ, I still see them as set apart in some way. That's what it's getting at. Look at what he's going to do. Well, let's first think about, before we kind of play out what does that mean and how is that going to work out, we can trust here from what this says that God is a God who does not forsake his promises. God does not forsake his promises. When God has made a covenant with Abraham and said that it will be forever through all generations, he means it. When God has said, I am going to surely do this, I will bless you and I will bless your family and make of you a great nation and you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He didn't say, okay, now that's over and I'm switching to a a different set of promises. No, he he doesn't forsake his promises. He has fulfilled his promises in ways that they didn't expect. He has fulfilled them in Christ. He has fulfilled them through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, through his heavenly reign, his heavenly intercession, through his promise to come again and to gather his people to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation together. He is fulfilling it, but he hasn't forgotten it. Now, is God going to fulfill all of the promises of Scripture toward you in the way that you expect? Well, 
No. <laughs> Some of them may be in the way that you expect. Some of them are just very, very straightforward and plain and clear in Scripture. But, but one of the things you see, God, God is going to fulfill his promises toward Abraham and his people, but not in the way they expected. And we can trust God is going to do it right. Every single thing that he has said he will do, he will do it perfectly. And he will do it for the good of us who believe in Christ. And it might not be how we expect him to do it, but he will do it. God loves to make a people for himself, to keep a people for himself, and he won't forget us. And then we see verse 17, that some of the branches have been replaced, but not the whole tree. You guys have your outline on the back of your bulletin, right? I hope this makes sense if you have that out. Some of the branches have been replaced, but not the whole tree. Here's what it says in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Now that's an if statement. We'll get to the then in a minute, but let's just look and see. Here's what it's saying is true. Some of the branches were broken off. What does that mean? It means that there are those who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, ethnic Israel, who are at this time broken off from their relationship with God. They are broken off from their relationship with God because they have rejected the way to be right with God, which is the person of Jesus Christ. They have been broken off from the olive tree of the true Israel, of the true people of God, and they've been broken off, as is going to tell us, because of their unbelief. And as long as they continue in that unbelief, they will remain broken off. And if they die in that unbelief, they will suffer for all eternity under eternal conscious torment for having rejected God and remained in their sins. That is sobering, but it's the truth. There is no salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Those who have rejected Christ have been broken off. And then he says also that you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others. Okay, we got we to start talking about olive trees for a second. I don't want to get too deep into this. There are books out there that will go like really deep into this and think, well, if we could just perfectly understand exactly what was going on with the people in the first century in Israel who kept olive trees and exactly how they did all of these things, if we could just understand that, then we would finally perfectly understand Romans 11. I don't think that's the point. Part of why I don't think that's the point is because he says later on in verse 24 that this is contrary to nature. He's not saying this is how it's done. He's saying this would be a bizarre way to do it. But let's just give an illustration of what God's doing here. That's what he's saying here. The, the, the olive tree, this, this beautiful tree with a richness in its roots and a richness in its trunk and a richness that goes out into its fruit of these beautiful olives that would be produced... That was a staple of the diet and of, of the economy of the old ancient Mediterranean world, and in some ways still is. You, know, you think of olive oil, and you think of that whole area around the Mediterranean, and you have these beautiful olive trees, and they've been cultivated, and this is what happens over time. As, as human beings are able to, to cultivate these plants to grow these beautiful fruits and to grow them richly, they, they, these plants become kind of different than the wild versions of themselves. But he says, look, this is this cultivated, 
beautiful olive tree. God has poured so much into this tree of his people. But there are these branches that absolutely refused to draw from the richness that was there. Refused to trust in Christ. And they have been cut off. And what's been brought in? The scraggly little wad (laughs) of this wild olive bush, you might almost call it. This is the way that it's described. I I'm, I'm certainly can never claim to be an expert on olive trees and wild olive trees and something like that, but the wild olive tree was known to be something that did not produce fruit or at least not good fruit. It was counted as worthless. You know, you had the cultivated olive tree. That's where you're going to get your cash crop. The wild olive trees, those are the ones you just leave alone and don't worry about because they're not going to do anything. But he says, here's what it's like. It's like God... After Christ has come and so many of his people had rejected him, he was determined that he was going to fill up his banqueting table. And so he went out into the streets, he went out into the highways, he gathered in who he could, and he went and he got wild olive branches, cut them off, grafted them into the tree. How exactly do you do that? I don't know. (laughs) They have some way to do that. But that's not all that important. What's important is that God has brought us in, us who are Gentiles, who have come to faith in Jesus. He has brought us in and made us a part, made us partakers of what he calls the nourishing root of the olive tree. We we get to partake in the faith of Abraham, to be part of of the true people of God, to be stones that God has raised up to be children of Abraham. Not because of what we've done, not because of some kind of birthright, not because of circumcision, but because he has had mercy on us and has brought us to faith in Jesus. Jesus. Jesus said that he was going to do this during his earthly ministry. He said in John 10, he said, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. He said it pretty plainly. He was saying, I am giving my life to save my fellow Jews, but also it's not just this flock. I also have others, others who right now are not part of this flock. He's saying, I have those that I am laying my life down and dying to save them from their sins who were not part of this Jewish people who was currently gathered at the time of Jesus, but I'm going to bring them in. I'm laying my life down for them. I'm going to bring them in. And he doesn't say, I'm going to keep them in a separate pen because I want to deal with them in a different way than I deal with these original ones. No, he says, there will be one flock, one shepherd. That's the same picture that's here in Romans 11. These two different kinds of branches, the cultivated, the refined, and then the wild, scraggly stuff brought in, but made into one single olive tree, one people of God sharing in the one nourishing root. He says in John 11, there is this prediction that accidentally came this prophecy that accidentally came out of the mouth of the unbelieving high priest 
where he says in John eleven fifty one 51, that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus' intention in his death was to save Jews and Gentiles, to gather them together from every tribe and tongue and nation, and to make us one children of God together. He gathers us in. We get to share in that nourishing root. Just remind you, I, I kind of referenced this earlier, what he says in Romans 4, but I'll just read it to you. It says in Romans 4.11 that Abraham is the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. He goes on in verse 16 of that chapter. He says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Or as it says in Galatians 3, verse 7, know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Don't you love that song, Father Abraham has many sons, I am one of them? We get to sing that by faith in Jesus. You might be from some random tribe from some part of the world who ended up in America somehow, who knows what, but if you trust in Jesus, you can say in truth, I am a child of Abraham. Because God has brought us in through the offspring of Abraham, whose name is Jesus, into the faith of Abraham, given to us by the Holy Spirit, to be joined together to this one people of God, to be children of Abraham by faith. Let me just give you a big picture overview of this. And I've said almost these exact words a couple of weeks ago in a sermon, but I'm going to say them again because they're hard to wrap our minds around is just a big picture overview of what we're talking about, what seems to be the scheme that the Bible lays out, that the New Testament lays out for God's dealing with Gentiles and Jews in Jesus Christ. That there is ethnic Israel that is a people that God chose to set aside for special purposes, especially the special purpose of sending Christ. That's what it says in the beginning of chapter 9. But the Bible also teaches that the word Israel can be talking about not just the physical descendants, but the true spiritual Israel, those who share in the faith of Abraham. And he tells us that this true spiritual Israel, it existed within the Old Testament nation of Israel all along. That's where God got it going with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that nation, that within that nation that was externally visible as a people of God in some sense, that there were still those within it who were the elect remnant of God, the believers. As he gave the illustration back in, in chapter 9 that there was a time when, uh, when, uh, when the prophet Elijah thought that he was the only one left of the true spiritual Israel, the only believer left in Israel. And God told him, no, I have set aside 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so within that ethnic and uh, kingdom, like earthly kingdom people, 
God had preserved a true spiritual people of Israel within it all along. All of it was pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. And now that Christ has come, it's become clear and open. The gates have been burst wide open for all to come and to partake of the nourishing root, to be joined to the true people of God, to be part of the true spiritual Israel by way of faith in Jesus Christ. All of the Jews who have failed to place their trust in Jesus as Lord and as Messiah have been broken off of that olive tree of God's true spiritual Israel. But all of the Gentiles who have placed their trust in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, we we have been grafted in, we have been brought in to the one true people of God that has existed all along, this true spiritual Israel of God. So the, the, the question comes up, has God replaced Israel? The answer is no, but he has reorganized it in Christ. He has reorganized Israel, not as a people that are defined by a common ancestry or by a common circumcision, but now as a people who are defined by a common personal faith in the true Israel whose name is Jesus. That's how we become part of the true Israel is by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I do want to say, one of the things that, that this passage does, it, it, it is one of those passages that calls our minds to think about hard things to put together, and it's one of those passages that as, as we eventually one day see exactly how God plays out all of the eschatology that's in front of us, all of the end times that's coming, uh, we will see it all clearly when it comes. But... There's something for us here right now. One one of the things that's here for us right now is the fact that God does not save individuals just to be individuals. Hear this. God does not want your faith to remain a private faith. You must have a personal private faith in Jesus or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again, or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You personally must turn to Jesus, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. You must be joined to him by faith. You must, as an individual, know him as your Savior. And as we have trusted in Christ, it says here, right here, that God joins us together with his people. He doesn't leave us as wild olive shoots, just one lying in the dirt over here and one lying in the dirt over there and one lying in the dirt over here and and just kind of individually watering us. The the way that he's done this is that he saves us. He, He has gone out and gotten you. You individual wild olive shoot, he has gone, pursued you, cut you off of the old olive tree. He has individually saved you, but he has also brought you in to stick you onto that nourishing olive tree where we together are to be the people of God coming together to be nourished in Christ. This passage and many, many, many others in the New Testament and the Old Testament leave no room for a purely private faith. We have to be part of the people of God. It is God's plan for us. Now, are you saved by going to church? No, obviously not. But if you trust in Jesus and you're able to get to church, will you? Yes. (laughs) Yes, you will. Because God joins us not just to Christ, but to Christ's people. 
I could go on about that for a long time. But I will just say there are somewhere between 40 and 45 commands in the New Testament that use the term one another. Do this with one another. And you cannot be in obedience to those 40 to 45 commands without being part of a local church. And so God joins us in not just to himself individually, but into his people. But the beautiful thing, the thing that's mainly brought out here, is that he has created for himself one people. One people. Now, of course, we meet in different places. Um, We have, in some cases, different convictions about how to understand the scriptures. We have different backgrounds. We cannot possibly, in this world, in this life, have one big church service with all of the people of God, but we will one day. We will one day. And we will get to see in person the whole olive tree right there in the presence of the farmer, the gardener, God himself. We will be one flock, one shepherd. He's brought us in to be one people of God. Now, if that's the case, he says in verse 18, I told you that was a big if statement, but then comes the then statement in verse 18. Here's the then. Then do not be arrogant toward the branches. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Don't boast toward the branches. If you do boast, then you know, hey, hold on a second. Are you the one who holds up everybody? Are you the one who was the original here? He says, no, it is the root that supports you. This is especially... Most directly, this is a call to Gentiles not to be arrogant toward the Jewish people. He says, he, he is recognizing here, he says, I, I mean, he, he has played this out over the last couple of chapters. He has recognized, yes, it is true that most of those at this point in history and at Paul's point in history, most of those who are part of ethnic Israel have rejected God by rejecting him when he came in person, in the person of Jesus Christ. They have been broken off. They're in a sad state, most, not all, but most. And he's saying here there is a temptation. He's recognizing that there is a temptation among Gentile believers in Christ to have an arrogance toward the Jewish people. To say, well, they are just out there unbelieving. They've rejected God. They've got their own culture. They've got their own things. They've got this and that. There's all kinds of things that people could and have come up with over the years to be arrogant. And Jesus says, don't do it. The Bible says, do not become arrogant toward the branches. Here's what he said in in Ephesians 2 about this. He says to, to us who are Gentile believers, he says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
He's saying much the same thing. He's saying, hey, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Remember that you were absolutely hopeless in the world. It is this Christ who has come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from David. He's the one that we have this salvation in. We were outsiders. We've been brought near by Jesus by grace, and so don't be arrogant toward the Jewish people. I just want to say, okay, there, there are all kinds of ways that the unbelieving world will throw accusations at us Christians about how Christianity is inherently anti-Semitic, or they will say something like, well, Christian theology is what caused the Holocaust. Those accusations are out there. If you know the very, very slightest thing about Hitler, you know that he hated not just Jews, but he hated Christianity deeply. So these are just empty accusations for the most part. But we can also see examples, sad examples, in church history and sad examples in the current day of those who give in to this temptation as Gentile believers to be arrogant toward the branches to have a sinful attitude toward the Jewish people. We must not do that. When you meet someone who is of Jewish descent, do not let your heart go to the things of arrogance. Do not let your heart start saying, how dare you not recognize Jesus? You must be terrible. There must be something about me that is better than you. Do you know the only difference? The grace of God the grace of God given in our hearts. And, and I want to remind you in those situations when we are having those encounters and, and have those opportunities, especially to tell the gospel to Jewish people, he says, this is the theme verse of the entire book of Romans. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I love this. When I'm, when I'm trying to tell somebody the gospel and they try to get me to go away by saying I'm Jewish, I say, that is fantastic. Because the Bible says that the gospel is for you first and also to somebody like me. So let me tell you about this Jesus who came from your very people who laid down his life for the nation and for those that are scattered abroad. Let me tell you about the Savior. We, whatever it is in any Christian heart that would have some kind of an arrogance toward the Jewish people, put that away right now. And don't bring it back up. Pray for their salvation and show them love and respect. All right? Um, beautiful example of that, by the way. This, this church... Uh, in the 1940s, had a pastor whose name was Garrett Detweiler. And he took a leave of absence from his time of pastor here for about a year so that he could sign up with the U.S. Army and go to Europe to be a chaplain. So he did that. He, he, the church granted him a leave of absence. Um, he went up to Cambridge, Massachusetts and trained to be uh, a, a chaplain. And he went to Europe and after he had been there for just a few months, 
uh, came the, uh, the, the victory in Europe. And he got to be part of the front lines of the U.S. Army as they went into Germany and as they were liberating these concentration camps. And you can just see there the incredible ugliness that has been expressed throughout history toward the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, toward the Jewish people. And you can see in his writings about that the compassion that he had for what was going on and his desire to spread the word, this horrific thing has happened, and we must not treat human beings this way, and we must not be arrogant toward the branches. And it's just beautiful to see something like that. But also, isn't that a great testimony of the way that God has preserved that physical people throughout the ages? It's an amazing thing. Throughout all of the attempts to destroy them, God has kept them around. That does not mean that they're automatically in heaven. But it does mean that that's part of the evidence that God has not forgotten his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that what's written in Romans 11, we can still look to a time when it seems that many will be brought back into the true Israel by faith in the true Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we pray that that would happen quickly. He says in, in verses uh, 19 and, and 20, you may try to combine a couple of points here. He says, you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. He's, he's bringing up this imaginary conversation partner and saying, well, here, here's what you might be thinking to say. Here's, here's why you might have an excuse to be arrogant toward the Jewish people is because God has, has put the unbelieving of the Jewish people on the outside and has brought us in. And, and here, here's his response to that in verse 20. That is true. Here's my translation to that. Okay. So? Here's his answer. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. He says, here is the true difference. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Jesus is the true olive tree. Jesus is the true vine. There, there are multiple times in the Old Testament when the nation of Israel is called by God some kind of a plant, whether it's a vine that was brought out of Egypt, as we read in Psalm 80 this morning, or whether it's a vineyard that God has cultivated and put up his, his high walls around and given every advantage or even, as is called in Jeremiah 21, a choice vine, or in Jeremiah 11, a green olive tree. In all these things, what that's pointing to is ultimately to Jesus. And we prayed this this morning from John 15, where Jesus told us, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you were clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. You hear that? When you've got a plant with branches that's the people of God who are staying alive by faith, what is it really? It's not just talking about the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's talking about the descendant of Abraham, whose name is Jesus 
that's ultimately who this is about. Here is how you may be a part of the people of God. Abide in the true vine whose name is Jesus. He is the vine. We are the branches. He says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And then there's this, this warning in verse 6 of that chapter. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. That's the same call to sober-mindedness, to watchfulness, to steadfastness of faith that's included in verse 20. They were broken off because of their unbelief, so do not become proud, but fear. You could say to yourself, oh, well, the Christian church is the, the, the new people of God, and I go to church, so I'm good. And this says, they were broken off because of unbelief. Do not presume to say to yourself, well, I was born among the new people of God. I was raised in the church. I'm here every Sunday. I this, I that, I no. I nothing. Jesus, everything. They were broken off because of so many, because me, instead of because Jesus. Stand in Christ. Never say to yourself, well, the reason that I am part of the people of God is because I. No. It's always because Jesus. Because Jesus has laid down his life for the sheep and gathered me in. Because I want to stand in Christ. And so he says, because of that, as we consider those who were part of that outward-looking people of God, because they were cut off, broken off with personal unbelief, do not fall to that same thing. Do not assume I'm just part of this people without a personal trust in Jesus. You see, it goes both ways. I said you have to have a personal trust in Jesus that's going to bring you into the people of God. But it goes the other way, too. You can't just say, well, I'm here in the tree. I'm here in the church, and therefore I don't have to have a personal trust in Jesus. It's both and. It is both and, and it's ultimately by personal faith in Jesus that God saves us and keeps us and makes us his true spiritual Israel forever. This fear that he talks about, I'll just read two verses about that. He says in Philippians 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean fear that God's going to throw you into hell if, if you don't do something just right. What it does mean is a, an awe, a recognition that the God who has saved you is the same God who does throw people into hell for unbelief. That the God who has shown you love and mercy is literally the scariest thing in the universe. But we stand because of the love that he's shown us in Christ. That's the kind of fear and awe that he's talking about. This beautiful reverence to know that he is the most dangerous thing there is. But also that he has loved us and brought us in and cared for us and will keep us for eternity. Stay in Christ. Bringing, as it says in 2 Corinthians 7.1, bringing holiness to completion 
in the fear of God. Trust in Jesus. I just want to say this. If, if you are an unbeliever, if, you, if you're not in Christ today, you might not care very much about the, the history of Israel and how God has worked these things out with Jews and Gentiles and all those kinds of things. I hope one day you will care because you've become a believer. But here's the main thing to know. God has made a way for all kinds of bizarre people from all kinds of places, all kinds of families and backgrounds. He has made a way for those rebels against him to be forgiven and brought in and to be his children and his people. And it's by faith in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus has shown us such love and compassion to lay down his life for us. Thank you that he is the true vine. Thank you for making us the branches. Lord, help us to be your people, to be your one people of God in a way that shows an abiding and increasing love for you and an abiding and increasing love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, as we see this, we're moved to pray, as we will be for at least the next two weeks by what's written here. We're moved to pray for the salvation of the Jewish people. Lord, we thank you for those places where we see the elect believing remnant already, for those that you have brought in to Christ from among the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we pray that there would be a revival among the Jewish people to, to turn to the Savior that you have already sent uh, Jesus, God in the flesh who has already come to see him as the Messiah, as personal Savior, as personal Lord, to be true children of Abraham by faith in Jesus. Father, I pray that where there is arrogance in any of our hearts toward them or toward others, I pray that you would strike that down and give us a humility toward you that would come as we look to the cross where Jesus had to die or else we'd be doomed. God, I pray that, um, that you would bring people in. I pray that you would bring more branches that were broken off back into the olive tree. I pray that you would bring more wild olive branches into this olive tree of the nourishing root of Christ. God, help us to be faithful. Help us to stand firm and to be in awe of your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.